Hello podcast listeners, this is Travis here, just with your friendly neighborhood content warning for this and the following episode of Tracks by Louise Erdrich. Tracks is a novel that features depictions of sexual assault and sexual violence against women, in addition to, I guess we would call it episodes of colonialist violence and takeover. I'm not sure if that warrants its own category, but I feel like it's worth mentioning up front because Amanda and I jump in and out of conversation so frequently and our segments don't go in chronological order or anything. I'm not going to timestamp anything. We don't do that for our content warnings. We're just going to leave this here up front as kind of a blanket statement for the entire episode. So if that's content you're uncomfortable listening to discussion about, then it's best to just skip these episodes. If you are comfortable with that, then we hope, as always, of course, that you get a chance to both read the book and listen in for the discussion and join us for this really incredible novel that's well worth the read. So just wanted to give that warning up front, and hopefully we will uh, see you for the rest of the episode. Hello, and welcome back to the Lightly Literary Podcast, the only book club podcast that always tests its boiling foods like pasta and stewed meats and veggies and such by just slamming our hand right in there just right up to the elbow i mean it's it, these are your god-given utensils on the hands you it's got true. five mm-hmm. fingers on each presumably maybe you know maybe you don't have hands that's fine you can put anything in there a foot a head i don't know yeah. i think just your whole face yeah in those moments i do like to ask what would it was a victoria who did that which character i forget the names which uh the one who's here there's she is a point of view character, Pauline. What would Pauline. Pauline do is the question I ask. And the answer is that Pauline would just get the hand right in there. She's not one to shy away from boiling her hand in for to make a her statement. Ent- yeah. Forearms and all. That's right. That's right. <laughs> if you have no idea what we're talking about and you're somehow still listening, again, we are the Lightly Literary <laughs> Podcast. I'm Travis, as always, joined by my co-host, Amanda. Welcome back, Amanda. Hello. We've been referencing a book just now called Tracks, and that is what we are here to do today. We are here to analyze and discuss the second half of this book, Tracks, by Luis, or I think it's Luisa. No, it's Luis Erdrich. Um, Yeah. If you clicked on this episode, this is book club part two for that novel, Tracks. And again, we're going to be discussing the whole book at this point, especially the second half, analyzing it, deep diving into it, etc. So that's what we're alluding to. And no, we're not going to boil our hands on you know, on mic or off mic, really, people, protect your hands. <laughs> you can't really get those back, you know. Treat them well. Treat them delicately, even if you're going for sainthood. It's not worth it. We have social media accounts. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook, at the Lightly Literary Podcast, all one word. So follow us there. Check us out. We post reminders of the books we're doing and scheduling stuff. There's some art on Instagram you can check out as well. So follow us there. And as always, rate and review us on iTunes or Spotify, whatever podcast platform you choose and swear fealty to. Go ahead and recommend us there. We are here to entertain and also talk about books. Let's get into this book. This is, again, part two of the book club for Tracks by Louise Erdrich. So if you haven't heard part one or if you haven't finished reading the book, then feel free to hit pause and come back to this episode later because we'll be doing the back half and then the whole book, of course. Everything is fair game for spoilers at this point. This is a book that I chose that Amanda gave me a prompt for that I kind of botched. In the end, Amanda, would you say that this book is about a war from a non-American point of view? (laughs) It's not a typical yeah. 
description of war, but I would say that it is almost warlike in 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 like Pauline versus Floor in a lot of mm-hmm. ways, and Pauline mm-hmm. versus the pagan beliefs of her of her tribe. Yes, right? so it's so, kind of like a war. The way she embraces Christianity, and then also the way that the land they end up losing a lot of land and things. You you could very well say that it fit my original interpretation that I was not picking a declared act of war by, for example, the Congress or something, but instead was interpreting the word warfare a little bit differently, slantedly. So I think mm-hmm. it ended up actually working okay, but definitely not <laughs> definitely not perfectly. But oh well, we got to <laughs> discuss this amazing book. So let's get back into it, folks. That's enough words of warning and heads up for now. Let's just talk about the novel tracks. We will begin today's book club, part two, uh, with some highs and lows. We like to update the quotes and things that we enjoyed or perhaps didn't enjoy about the book, especially now that we're finished with it and finished the back half. Amanda, start us off with a high or a low. Um, I have so many highs, so I'll just go ahead and throw my low out there because it was so difficult for me to yeah. think of one. Um but I guess um, just what I mentioned on the, the previous episode where I'm not sure who Pauline slash Leopolda is speaking to, yeah. whereas with um, Nanapush, we, we know exactly who he's speaking to. Um, so is she speaking to herself? Is she speaking directly to the readers? Like, is, is she talking to the other nuns? It's, right. Yeah. But I would say just that lack of clarity, perhaps, um, for me, was the only thing that I was kind of like question mark about. I think that it would be thematically strong for a reading to be that she's speaking, of course, to God in some kind of confessional manner. But I don't know if the text would hold that up. I just don't. I don't think so. Yeah, there's, of course, no references to you with a capital Y, which would be, you know, some kind of giveaway. But. Even besides that, even if it was a bit more subtle in its representation or narration, yeah, I don't know if that would up, would hold up. And I have no reading to offer you. I, I honestly didn't think about it that much, but you're right because Nana Push's chapters are so clearly narrated. It does, mm-hmm. yeah, it does call it into question. Maybe it's a journal or something. I don't know. Oh yeah, I hadn't even thought of that. Yeah, I'm not sure either. And I, I could. I'll pile on a bit because I also have one low, uh, two highs for me, but one low. I just felt like pulling. Pauline's character got kind of an abrupt development. I think it didn't feel unearned, and I think, most importantly, once it became clear, okay, she's she's really lost and listless, she's converting to Christianity, she's being influenced by that aspect of the reservation life, and kind of that aspect of America creeps in on her, I think that all became pretty fascinating, and I thought her contrast then in the back half was essential, and there were so many moments she had that I enjoyed, but I still think... There was some timeline jumping that I just don't think I paid as much attention to as I should have. And I think that mm-hmm. at the beginning of each chapter, it frames the years and the seasons. And I think yeah. some of that just passed my brain by because a few moments for Pauline just felt like, she, for example, she sees the vision of the saint or something in a statue at some point, And then it's like yeah. a page later, she's in the in the convent or a page later, she's in you know, she's with the nuns and it was just kind of like, yeah. Oh, she's completely changed her entire lifestyle now. Just, and it, yeah, I don't know. Some of that felt a bit abrupt for me. It was one thirty one to one thirty six, and it's, you know, Bernadette's mad at her and yells at her. It's, it's essentially when she's trying to force herself to have an abortion, I believe is, isn't that what mm-hmm. was happening? Yeah. And she also, and she also gives birth then. Cause I know that didn't, it didn't take her. She makes an agreement, right. To give her daughter away. 
I believe yeah. is okay. And then yeah, after that, of course, is when she converts really quickly. And there's literally on one thirty six, it goes from her giving away the child, and then it says, "At the convent, I arose." So it doesn't, you know, there's no backstory to it. It's you're meant to jump with the, the inference, basically, and sort of piece it together mm-hmm. later. So I didn't think it was poorly done or anything, and not again, not totally unwarranted. But between the pregnancy just being a few pages long and then that jumping to and now my life is 100 percent different and that's going to like pretty traumatically impact other people that it just yeah, it felt a bit quick to me. That was my only low that I could come up with, though. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. So I had no other low moments for me. Let's get into the stuff we enjoyed. Do you want to start off with a high? Sure. Um, So I would say that a high for me is just in general, I really enjoyed her style. Um, But I really enjoyed her um, unique descriptions, especially when she used imagery and metaphors and other comparisons, because they were very different from what you would read in, in other novels. I think because she was using a lot of like the her understanding of like Native American storytelling in comparisons. And I really appreciated that. <clears throat> and an example that I pulled is from uh, page 225. Um, Margaret and Father Damien begged and threatened the government, but once the bureaucrats sink their barbed pens into the lives of Indians, the paper starts flying, a blizzard of legal forms, a waste of ink by the gallon, a correspondence to which there is no end or reason. That's when I began to see what we were becoming, and the years have borne me out, a tribe of file cabinets and triplicates, a tribe of pressed trees, a tribe of chicken scratch that can be scattered by a wind diminished to ashes by one struck match. And I thought that was just beautiful. <laughs> mm-hmm. Sad and beautiful. Yeah, it's, there's about 10 things to untangle in that in that yeah. line. I guess it's a series of images and sentences you read. It's Yeah, I think it's what grounds Nana pushing the narrative is that he, he may be, in his own words even, sort of like simple and old-fashioned, but it's he knows the land is only is the only real thing that anything else, mm-hmm. you know, without that is, is going to fade away is temporary, etc. And, you know, he suffers the hard times because of that belief too. probably doesn't, I don't know, enjoy the, the fruits of selling or, you know, getting the, getting the payday or cashing out or anything like that. And so, you know, mm-hmm. there's some rough times and there, there's some suffering in there too, because of that belief and that kind yeah. of rigidity. But in the end, you're right. The, an imagery like that portrays that it, if it's not that, then it becomes a very fluttering, bureaucratic, more of a non-existence, kind of just this like ghostly state. Right. That and and so precarious. Right. That it can be destroyed so easily. Mm-hmm. Um, that last sentence there. So yeah, yeah. There was that ending scene when the land is really being forcibly taken, or when the construction crews finally make it there, mm-hmm. and it's. I feel like this is almost a trope in a sense, but it's when the the person on the ground doing the work has to have the argument with the holdout person where it's, you know, it's not really their fault, so to speak, though. I guess they were framed as an agent, so maybe it was kind of their fault, but you know that it's some bigger machinations, there's some bigger person, some other power, but the person on the ground is just kind of like, look, man, just get the hell out of here. Like, what what can I do about it? I'm just here to do what I'm told. (laughs) You know, there's always that Mm -hmm. one conversation between the people on the ground that is always so uncomfortable and awkward and everything and i thought that scene was pretty pretty tough but that image you chose or that series that paragraph is probably one of the stronger pieces or representations of it yeah 
And so I think, I mean, didn't you pick there a quote that is a, is a form of warfare? Again, I just have to keep interpreting my own reading um, very generously. Yeah, I think so, actually. Um, and also it's because it highlights the, um, what is the word, the, the colonization mm-hmm. of, yeah. of a people, right? And so, right. and it, it highlights the um, the suffering of the people too, right? He calls it a blizzard of legal forms and, and you look through all the winter chapters and they're all starving. So these right. months of anything to do with snow is not, it's not a great thing <laughs> right. uh, for them. And then it says a waste of ink. That's another negative take on that, right? Things are being wasted, right? And the pressed trees. So instead of the trees being free and growing freely, it, when you think of something being pressed together, it's being destroyed, right? Mm-hmm. Reformed yeah. in a different way. So I think that it is, uh, almost warlike in its imagery in in how it's being conquered, how the tribe is being conquered. Yeah, it's definitely a great threat, and it's it is a yeah, it's a war of attrition and complication and confusion. It's you know ends up being bureaucratic machinations mm-hmm. that the the colonizer brings. It's I think it there is a certain brutality that a person could go after because the conflicts were of course like literally brutal and immediately violent stuff like that. But I think the ultimate goal of course is to make it all look like a nuisance of paperwork, you know, Oh, just another complication to overcome for some, you know, large government just to acquire more stuff, which all ends Mm -hmm. up in the ledger anyway. So yeah, no, I think it's a perfect passage to choose. I, I hadn't, I don't know. I feel like I remembered reading that as soon as you started reading it again. But yeah, it's very well chosen. I'll pull one then from Pauline because I pulled a high moment from her. I thought that despite the low I mentioned, once the convent started, I think getting her there might have been a bit abrupt for me. I already outlined that. But once she Mm -hmm. was there, I think her narration became more interesting to me. The... The things she did to herself and went through, I think, are just such a fascinating contrast to everybody else and every other character's development in the story. That The way she wants to endure pain to justify herself and becomes this kind of vessel for the Lord, I guess, you know, even going explicitly for, for sainthood in a sense, which is in itself absurd, but just shows how lost and kind of far gone she is. But I think it's almost, it, feel, it felt very hallucinatory, is hallucinatory a word? hallucinogenic maybe that her half of the story i mean i know that things we already talked about how in the first half the the, um, author um, erdrick plays with myth and things felt mythical maybe real maybe not and it's all a little hazy i think pauline's stuff really amplified that it seemed like she was really detached from like the physical happenings of the world that that even i think bears itself out the most when she murders that person um was it napoleon she murdered yeah, okay, her fitting enough. Lover. Yeah, the, the father <laughs> of her child, I think, right? Yeah. So a fitting yeah. enough circle that closed on that then, but especially that moment when, you know, I you couldn't tell in that scene if she that was floating and was just kind of going to heaven or dying. That could have been the way it was going, and then it becomes clear later in the scene that it's there is an actual person in front of her, and she wasn't even aware of it and everything. She was probably you know nearly frozen to death or something so mm-hmm. i did pick one quote I, at that moment i thought it was quite potent and kind of wrapped up her narrative and i don't know it let her finish her story in a very <laughs> violent kind of visceral way i don't know how we'd read that but i pulled something from 158 and kind of i don't know symbolizes or is a moment that i think shows her section and what it did so well 
Um, this is when she's with Fleur in the in the tent. I saw that she was dying despite the medicines, despite all that I could do, all the prayers I had lifted, and that the baby would go with her. The stillness lasted so long it became a threat and then a certainty. She would not take me as well, or she would take me as well. I sat paralyzed. Fleur tightened one arm around, um, about the bundle in her shirt. She tossed the other arm high. I didn't see through didn't see her though. I was dazed in the gold of the serpent's twirling eyes. Her face was hidden as if in a cowl. The room was so dark I could not see but only hear the whisper of the knife at which I threw my legs apart. The blade stuck in the wool and I was pinned there through layers of wool and cotton. Then we were held in the night together. The fire in the stove went out. The moon rode behind a cloud. The lamp recovered for a moment and I saw Fleur walk to the door, open it, and step through. A swirling blackness lowered, lifted, and when I pulled away, the knife from up between my thighs dropped. And I followed her, and then it goes on. So even moments like that, I think, I suppose what I enjoy so much about this, other than just some of the imagery and the flow of it all, the writing and everything which you've commented on well, I, I just can't tell what's real and what's not in these moments with her, which mm-hmm. I think in the back half played better than in the front, if that makes sense. I think mm-hmm. because we know she's sleep-deprived and food and nutrition-deprived and she's you know, punishing herself, trying to become a saint and is deep into the, into her new religion and everything and is going through that. This all felt very dreamlike to me, you know, is there a knife? Is there not? What are they doing? And, you know, I could see that being frustrating for a certain reader, just wanting to know like, well, is Flora's baby okay? You know, if you're just worried about the plot of things, it could be frustrating, but if you just Mm -hmm. let yourself get swept up in it, I think it's pretty, I don't know. It's pretty remarkable. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Pauline, too, to me, is kind of almost comical in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. especially when Nana Push is, like, tormenting her. Right. right. <laughs> um, but also, like, it, her vanity. Um, I really admire the the way that Erdrick is able to kind of, like, really develop that particular vice mm-hmm. in... Pauline. I mean, like the the entire reason that she wants to become a saint is because she needs to be seen. She needs that sense of importance, which is why she dislikes Floor so much. Is because everybody sees Floor. Everybody pays attention to Floor. So I I really like how that particular vice from the very beginning we see it, and then it kind of morphs into something even more threatening in a lot of ways later. So yeah, I find that really well done. It's fitting enough, I think the way the narrative so twists and turns when it's in her moments and Pauline's moments that in that scene, for example, she's so certain that Fleur is going to die, that the baby will die as well, that it's all doom and everything's coming down, that even I was like, oh, this is definitely the scene that Fleur dies, because I had already thought that that might happen or that the narrative Mm -hmm. might present that. And then, Mm -hmm. of course, she doesn't, ultimately, and she doesn't, I mean, the baby does go, but the she doesn't. And so I was even so much with Pauline that I thought when it didn't happen, even I thought like, oh, wow, well, the you know, the imagery of it all, the the, the progression of the scene, that they're out in the night, it's dark, it's so moody and ominous and they're all that stuff. And, it, and then, of course, when it nothing transpires the way Pauline exactly thinks, I you know, sign of powerful narrative that I had to go back and think, well, yeah, because that, that was Pauline hallucinating a lot of things. And <laughs> and she's also, like you said, got a pretty narrow and skewed view and is so absorbed in her own, I don't know, religious quest or something. Right. Her interpretations. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I, when I was reading it, I think I just got swept up in Pauline's. I guess the narrative voice to me spoke uh, not on a personal level, but in a 
rhetorical level to me i just found her conversion so i don't know like devastating and like i said kind of hallucinogenic hallucinatory Whichever word is the real one, you guys out there can just pick one. <laughs> one of those words is probably real. Otherwise, uh, give me a little interpretive room. How about another high for you? Uh, sure. Um, another high for me um, would be the background strife of the tribe. I like that it's something that's like simmering in the background, and it's not yeah. something that's necessarily in the forefront. We get that through like possibly allegory and some... Um, Mm -hmm. some big discussions but as far as it being kind of the focus of the story the focus of the story is actually like the consequences but it's it's how the tribe is being torn apart by those things because you have people who are benefiting from it and those who are fighting against it and stuff like that so i thought that was really nice um Mm -hmm. and she mentioned the writer mentioned like a lot right she talks about Disease. She talks about famine, poverty, alcoholism, government policies that erase native culture, like the education um, yeah, yeah. that we see at the very end as well. Mm-hmm. And I just thought that by keeping it more of like a background structure thing rather than making it be the actual focus of the story, it was, I think, more almost like threatening in a way it gives like the the story more of like a feeling of like some like just unhappiness and unease throughout yeah there's no grand showdown and when they do right. lose the land or at least when the is it so was it that the woman he, nana push was with at this point i should have said this disclaimer at the top i'm definitely not going to remember names today because we finished this book like two weeks ago and i have forgotten every <laughs> name from this entire book and so i'm not going to remember any names today at all i'm going to just describe things vaguely so apologies margaret to the is our, her name. there we go margaret i was gonna say our recording schedule got off and so i you know we were going to record this like two weeks ago and i've yeah, no names will come back to me. Anyway, so disclaimer. <laughs> but the, yeah, the woman he was with, did she, so she secretly kind of negotiated the money so her land was protected, but not right. his or floors, right? That was kind of the arrangement. Exactly. Okay. Do, you know, mm-hmm. looking out for her interests in the end and, you know, I guess, you know, but they're together. I'm sure she was, had that reasoning. I just couldn't quite remember what that was. Okay. You're right. It does feel, well, it definitely centers Floor still and, and not to push their f- kind of familial bonds. Do you still think it's Floor's story? Because we, in the first half, commented a lot about how it felt like it was very much her book, even though she wasn't a narrator. I don't know. Did you feel that way in the end? Yes, I did. Um, so with Floor, I, I feel like with Floor's ending there too, especially because we talked about how Floor might actually be kind of a symbol for like the idea of the old ways, the traditions of the tribe. And so she's going head to head with um, Pauline, who could be a symbol of at least the religious side of the, the colonization um, mm-hmm. of these people. And so she has a final act in the end there where she right cuts down all the trees um but like only most of the way so that they all fall down during that windstorm um right which is brilliant mm-hmm, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then she just like disappears right and she gives up she doesn't give up her daughter but she realizes that her daughter would probably be better off without her because Floor is fighting against these people and what kind of life is that for her daughter, really? Right. right? So 
Yeah, I think that this is still a story of Floor, but I think of Floor as the the personification of the tribal ways. Yeah, it almost... I'm going to jump out um, on to the deep end with a really strange reading here. But I think what the ending revealed to me... So I have that as a high. We can talk about that moment now. The, essentially, what you, when she traps the construction workers by, yeah, half sawing mm-hmm. down a bunch of trees, and then they get, you know, it comes down around them, destroys some things. Don't know if it killed anyone or not. I don't, I don't think it described that, but it definitely destroyed them and trapped them and, you know, puts a hampering on their on their construction efforts and everything, kind of one final trick, which kind of a slapstick, almost goofy moment, but it wasn't written mm-hmm. that way. It's just that, like to picture it seems like a, a goofy thing from a movie almost, but I thought in the moment, the way it was written with the wind and the tree, like I thought it all worked in the moment, but looking back at picturing it, it's like, oh, it's kind of a like a goofy thing that would happen in like a teen kids movie or something. But anyway... That whole scene and then her disappearance, right? It did mm-hmm. make me think back, or at least I'm thinking back now. If she is meant to be some kind of symbol to, and we can hoist upon her the reading of she represents, yeah, like you said, some kind of adherence to older ways, some, you know, pre, pre-colonization of America, way of living, way of life, something about Native American lifestyles, that kind of a reading. I She's mm-hmm. just so passive in this book Everything is hoisted upon her from afar. Her fearful reputation, you know, the the way people view her as kind of a symbol of death and, you know, woman of the lake and has some kind of ancestry with that. She doesn't do anything, though, to anyone. Even, and this is going to sound maybe like, a, again, a wild swing and really harsh, but when she's assaulted and raped in the town, she, she didn't, like, it didn't seem like she fought. I'm sure she did, but, like, the way that scene came out, she she tried to ran and then, did, and then didn't get away. Like, it's... I can't think now of a single moment where she, like... I mean, she's not meant to be malicious, I don't think. A lot of that's myth-making, in a sense, but can you think of a moment when she, like, really aggressively resisted? Except for that final act, but even that... She leaves, you know, so even that wasn't right. an act of aggressive resistance. It was just sort of, I'm doing one final thing on my terms on my land, but now I'm going to fade away too. I don't, it just, I, now I'm recasting how I think of her because, you know, she's meant to be a, an intimidating woman of this land. And so, but now I think back and it's just, she's kind of a passive figure. She is in a lot of ways because she, instead of, She's described as powerful, right? None of us talks about how powerful she is. And Pauline talks about how powerful she is. But in reality, the power that she supposedly gets is actually from the land and from nature around her, right? So the way that she gets her revenge, quote unquote, and the way that she resists is through, like, with the rape scene, it was the pig, Right. Yes. That comes to like and then and then the revenge for that is the tornado. So all these things right, that right. nature came for them. Exactly. Yeah. So it's all nature based. And then like she destroys nature around her in on her island so that they can't destroy it. So right, I think right. that which has added meaning. But I think, yes, yeah, as far as if we were to believe that that she did not actually have those connections to nature and that was not actually her doing those things, which is left up for interpretation. There's no, like, I mean, you can yeah, interpret course. it either way. Then, yes, she is very passive in a lot of ways, but that's also perhaps a commentary on, like, uh, the colonization of um, the the Native American peoples 
a lot of, um, <clears throat> from what I've read of like uh, some Sherman Alexi and other um, Native American writers, like they they say that they didn't fight enough against the colonization. Um, so that could be a commentary perhaps from Erdrick. Not to say I don't want to like interpret her work for her. She, yeah, you know, writes her own stuff. But like it could be we could interpret it to be like um, her own interpretation of like the passivity. It, yeah, of just letting yeah. things kind of being overtaken. Yeah, I mean, look at some of the ending moments and some of the symbolic readings of the ending. When she does the tree trick of sorts, it makes a it forms a perfect circle around her home. You know, is it, mm-hmm. it's, but it's not protective in the end because she abandons it. It's not like then she puts up a resistance. That was the act of right. resistance, if you want to call it that. But yeah, it's kind of a symbolic completeness moment. But even then at the end, the nature comes in. It says the wind settled, curled back into the clouds, moved on. And we were left standing in the landscape level to the lake and to the road. And so it is as if she's thrown one more almost favor by nature. That she, right. and I think you're right, we're left to interpret her, you know, connection to the land and to nature as much as we want to interpret it. But it, it, it does paint the, even the clouds, the wind as sort of, it did her this final solid and then, you know, moved either with her or away or something. And so, yeah, I, I did recast, I mean, especially, you know, she abandons her daughter, somebody who then is raised in a new generation and clearly based on Nana Push's narrative throughout the whole thing is be- getting westernized. She goes to a school to get converted or what was the term they used? Not conversion. The um, imagery they use is imprisonment, but um, totally. And they even have matching, you know, jumpsuits to, to spare. Yeah. Now, I'm trying to think of the term from, you know, middle school history class that they there's a term for this. It was a specific it's a specific type of cultural uh, conversion when it's forced upon you. Indoctrination? Yes. Kind of. Kind of. If, I'll th- if I think of it, all, But yeah, with all of the terms we've used would work for what I'm trying to mean. But yeah, and so it's clear that, you know, she even, as kind of a generational last stand, could be read that way too because of what she does to her daughter. Which I know you mm-hmm. asked questions about too. Or I, I don't know if you texted that to me or wrote it in the doc, but at some point I remember you thinking about that moment too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Any other high moments you want to touch upon? Because I did... You know, I wasn't above a little, like, fist pump. I'm glad she didn't go quietly. You know, she had one more act. Oh, yeah. And, and and you know, for as much as my criticism I just levied was about her passivity, that's a, you know, she deliberately did that. She stole that axe and planted that act and planned it and everything and got a little boost from nature. But it did, yeah, I don't know. Just the way she leaves the narrative recast my reading of her, I think, a bit. But anyway, any other highs for you? Um, just the, the narrative voices. Like I loved Nana Push as a narrator mm-hmm. and Pauline, I also enjoyed as a narrator for diff- completely different reasons. But I think that she wrote two almost opposite characters in such beautiful ways. And, and it really shows her mastery. And we talked a bit mm-hmm. about like Nana Push's playfulness and, and his wisdoms and his, uh, witticisms and stuff and 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 then with Pauline I really love how self-aggrandizing she is <laughs> just yeah 
it makes me kind of chuckle every time that I read something where she's like, I turned the other cheek in order to show my modesty, but then I jumped back <laughs> before he could slap me. Right. And right. Like, just stuff like that. I just kind of giggled. So I really enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah. Nana Push, I think the ultimate moment in narrative twist, because you do get used to his playfulness and his can be lightheartedness at times, you know, even though he has a serious moments for sure, but he is that voice. Uh, the scene when he's trying to make Pauline pee herself, but it's from Pauline's point of view, I thought was yeah. a, was the real mastery moment for me because it wouldn't have been as funny from his getting his interpretation of what he was doing. It was her self-seriousness played up against his goofiness that I think was, I'll remember that scene for, yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's a great one. Yeah, <laughs> I love the way that he tortured her. <laughs> right, yeah, and the way that, of course... Sometimes when you're getting teased, as they say, this is, you know, like some kind of middle school axiom or bit of wisdom. But sometimes if you're the one being teased, the harder you resist, the more and funnier the teasing becomes and the more intense Mm -hmm. it becomes. So it's almost, you know, better to play dead like with a bear (laughs) and just not react. Right. And so the fact that she was being so self-serious, of course, only made him go harder. Oh yeah. These are these are classic truths of the of the teasing <laughs> game. <laughs> Any other high moments in the second half for you? Uh no, that's it. Excellent. Yeah, we covered the ones I wanted to discuss too. All right, let's move on to the imaginary essays. This is the final kind of analytical moment for Amanda and I on the podcast, or Amanda and me. I'm going to give Amanda an essay prompt that I have made up. We take the time to respond to each other's prompts, but we don't actually write an official essay. We just sort of outline a response. Again, just as a final way to analyze the book and think about some of the thematic components to it and, yeah, try and analyze it one final time. Amanda, my question for you is a simple one. There are, generally speaking, two lines of analysis with literature and other art forms, too, movies and TV and such. That caused me to do a little eye roll, though not literal, more mental eye roll, which is when people analyze book titles and character names. Um, I don't think that these are invalid lines of thinking. I just usually find them a little obvious, and I find that they they don't usually actually have as much depth or interest to me as other aspects of storytelling or something. But this was the first book that, upon finishing it, I feel compelled to betray my instincts on that. And so my question for you is, what is the meaning of the title, Tracks? What relevance does it have? What thematic meanings could be read into? And feel free to talk about the cover art of your book if you felt that mattered. This was, and I think it's because of its wide-open, single-word nature that I feel compelled to ask now, because I feel like it could be read, I don't know, a lot of ways, actually. So take it away with the title. Yeah, um, I think that it's meant to be kind of ambiguous, in in a lot of ways kind of like the idea of like does the magical realism actually exist or is it just these superstitions and and not real magic and not real connections so i think she did that on on purpose um so what is immediately called to mind for me is an image of footsteps in the snow Specifically the snow, because snow is such a huge element mm-hmm. um, yeah. in this book because it's tied so intimately with the idea of starvation and famine and and need, right? And, um, and just being almost, uh, there's like discussions of like some depression and stuff like that and, and, and loneliness. Um, 
So for me, the, when I read the title after reading this book, I think of Footsteps in the Snow. And even the very first paragraph, it talks about snow. And then what also comes to mind for me is remember when, um, is it Eli? Eli, Describe, right? describe yes. what their function is and I can tell you. Um, sorry. <laughs> Eli is Fleur's... Um, uh, husband but, yeah. slash father of her child. I don't get married, but f- yeah. Father. Yeah, she, I think sure. they refer to each other as husband and Great. wife. Great. Okay, cool. Yeah. I'm on board. Um, but there's no church wedding. Right, right. Um, but when he goes moose hunting, and for me, yeah, the meat suit is like a huge thing, but for me, it's like the footsteps and, and him tracking the moose, right? So there's going to be the moose tracks, but also his tracks and then his tracks coming back probably with a little bit of blood on his shoe. I don't know. Anyway, so that what comes to mind for me in that sense is the idea of hunting or of chasing prey, um, which is equally as prevalent in this story as the idea of just like footsteps and being in the snow um, because there is... Uh, some mention of hunting as means of survival rather than, you know, going to the store to buy stuff. They prefer to go out and get stuff. Right. So they're, they're actually hunting. There's gardens, there's like a a farm, right. There's more of a connection to the land in that way. Um, And, but I also think of chasing prey and the idea of hunting with Pauline's character in particular, as she tries to convert everyone, right? She talks about her numbers, right? She wants the, (laughs) she wants to convert everybody in the tribe, um, so that she can get recognition, um, for that. Yeah. So I think of hunting as far as like the natural aspect, but it's not just. Uh, the the old ways, but the new ways are also hunting down the old ways in a lot of ways. Um, yeah, it'd be easy to read Pauline as she wants to leave literal impressions in terms of influence on this earth, which doesn't right. take much of a metaphorical twist to read that as a form of tracks, you know, leaving impressions mm-hmm. and such. Um, I also think of the tradition in the stories that Nanapush shares in this novel as tracks, right? The last remnants of a culture that's slowly being overcome by government, disease, religion, and money, right? He talks about like how money is just like consuming everybody, but it's not actually meaningful, um, which is a major theme of the novel. So when he is leaving behind these little tidbits, I think of tracks in the sense of purposefully leaving behind pieces of information, encouraging people to follow you on this journey into, um, in this case, like the, the world of tradition Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. Yeah. What do you think? How do you think floor connects to this? I don't know if you have a reading for her with regards to the theme or the kind of motif of tracks. If I think of Nana Push as the person who is leaving the tracks um, and leading specifically Lulu, because um, he's talking to Lulu, um, mm-hmm. back to the idea of tradition and understanding the old ways, he's also leading her back to her mother, right? He encourages her at the very end to visit her mother. He's like, you need to forgive her. You need to visit her. And if we 
understand Fleur as being kind of like the embodiment, the symbol of the old ways, then he is leading her back to the old ways as well. Yeah, yeah. At least trying to. Yeah. Excellent. Okay. Any final thoughts on tracks as a... Yeah, I, I think I agree with a lot of those readings. Any any final thoughts on tracks or the cover art or anything? Was yours also the the quilt? Yeah, so I was thinking... I was looking at the cover art too, and it does make me think of patchwork, but not quite a quilt because a quilt to me is way more uniform and um, is meant to tell a story with pictures in a lot of ways, right? Yeah. Um, right. When you do decorative quilts, but also it's um, a quilt is particular like same size squares throughout right Mm -hmm. and this one is not but it's still a patchwork and i think that it's meant to to be not uniform um to show that there's lots of different ways of of doing stuff i'm not 100 percent sure but it's all very square and it all does lead back to like there's definitely a center a center line that goes mm-hmm. through. So I don't know. Interesting. It I was interesting. I really like the colors. Yeah, <laughs> me too. Me too. I, I also read it as quilt. And then look, upon looking at more, I thought maybe you could read it as land parcels. Oh yeah. But you know, I'm sure there are many readings of it. Just kind of like the title. It's open-ended enough for certain that you can read an abstraction like that. Any number of ways. Excellent. Okay. Mm-hmm. Any final thoughts on that essay prompt? Uh, nope. I thought it was a great one. Okay. Well, then I am open to yours when you're ready to uh, to serve it over. Yeah. We talked about floor possibly being an allegory. If that's the case, what purpose do Pauline and Nana push, especially since they're the narrators, serve? Yes. It is a reading that I think takes a real twist in the middle because... The first half of this novel I would have read probably in some kind of age-based way, generational differences, which I think my reading will come back to that kind of. But I think, yeah, so the first half of the story, it's all about how do how does people in this tribe respond to colonization, about being how do they respond to that form of abuse, whether it's in your face and immediate or really slow and kind of degrading over time. But I think because of Pauline's turn in the second half, it's just so dramatically different the things she gets up to though i think there's hints of it in that chapter where she tries to persuade the the young girl to have sex with eli there's some hints that she has some kind of you know really deviant part of her kind of social manipulative part of her so i think that mm-hmm. maybe you know there are hints of it there but anyway i'd rather untangle pauline first and go to nana push later because i think my reading on him is simpler fr- frankly but i i found the second half of the book just to be such a fascinating mess for her that i it left me wondering a lot of how I was meant to interpret her story, um, though I think I'll come out with a reading. On 152, she has some interesting stuff about Nana Push and suffering him. She says, Embarrassment. I counseled myself to suffer Nana Push. If the history is written of my endurance, let it report that I never toppled, never gave way to fury, but tried with gentle patience to hoist his soul out of the slop pail. To do this, it was necessary to accept his jabs and arrows. The potato sacks I wore beneath my woolen gown were malodorous, I know. Nana Push pinched his nose shut and howled when I arrived at Floor's house one day. And, you know, he's trying to help her out. So there's there's that aspect of it where she is being, in, in a very literal, physical presence, absurd. She's doing these really arbitrary punishments that no one wants her to do, including the nun that oversees her. She's right. doing all these hyperbolic things to 
open herself up to God, expose herself to him, be, be your pure vessel for his, you know, appreciation or love or something. And, you know, Nana Push uh, the whole time is just a more pragmatic <laughs> in the moment. Let's live in the physical realities of this earth kind of a thing. You stink. Let's have you not stink. I'll help you. And, you know, he's very practical and helpful in those ways. So I thought that scene was pretty meaningful. Shows kind of where her mindset is. On 163, this is where I believe that Fleur's baby has just passed and she had a a stillbirth or some equivalent to that, right? And so she, where is the quote on this one? I'm going to have to pause to find it. I should really underline these, huh? (laughs) Oh, yes, here it is. She finds the baby or sees the baby and she says, I've read its name in the pattern of wet black twigs. I've heard it crying to its father, the presence in the lake. There is so much to be done now, so many plans in too few hours. Before Eli came back that morning without the box, I had found the door in spite of my dread at the journey. I told Margaret that I was leaving and that I would ask Father Damien to visit. I would find Bernadette and she would make a strengthening uh, broth. Margaret's answer was to spit on my shoe, and when I bent over in humility to wipe, she spat on the crown of my veil, so that before I rose, I had to admonish myself in Christ's instruction, turn my cheek to moral blows, and I put out my hands. And then then she gets hit and does turn away. And so, ah, there's there's just so many things in this that I want to unpack in terms of what Pauline thinks she's controlling or not controlling. There's there's a hint that she knows this is going to happen, but then again, she also knew that Floor was going to die and Floor didn't die. There's her kind of interpretation of the baby's passing that she kind of views Floor as this evil, like you said, pagan scourge or something. And so the baby dying to her doesn't seem to be any tragedy or anything. She wants to baptize it, though, you know, do her rituals. But so there's there's then Pauline being not sympathetic toward Floor or anything. And not it's not that her form of hatred comes out as hate, but as sort of this like religious indifference or hostility in terms of tradition and everything. I just... I don't know, her whole response to it and talking about reading the twigs and being a sort of seer or something, there's that version of Floor, uh, Pauline. And then I pulled one more quote for Pauline just to examine the mess and entanglement of her character just one more time <laughs> from one different angle. On 192, <laughs> she begins, Christ was weak, I saw now, a tame newcomer in this country that has its own devils in the waters of boiling over kettles. I lifted my hands to my face, fat gauze clubs that smelled of roast meat, an odor that has sickened me since, a grease, or as grease from a bit of venison was all superior found to dress my wounds. That night in the convent bed, I knew God had no foothold or sway in this land, or no mercy for the just, or per- that perhaps for all my suffering and faith, I was still insignificant, which seemed impossible. I knew there never was a martyr like me. I was hollow unless pain filled me, empty but for pain, and yet for the unceasing trial of my boiled hands was terrible. I cannot tell. There was no beauty in it at this level. I just endured. I was enfevered. And then she goes on to, you know, lament her condition and everything. So, but, you know, in the end, she does put herself out on a boat to sacrifice herself in the name of God. So it's not that she lost her faith completely, but she does question the journey. She does question herself and her own punishments against herself. Her, I guess is that that's what penance is in the religion, I think, right? Is that that mm-hmm, concept? Right. It's been a minute for me. Yeah. So, and I w- wasn't raised Catholic. That feels like a very Catholic thing to me. But anyway. <laughs> yes. So, <laughs> yeah, wasn't raised in that tradition. So I don't, wouldn't even have a notion of that really. But, I, and so, you know, in, in the end, I think she does not waver really. 
but she also has these moments of doubt and weakness. I mean, she uh, this is after she boiled her own hands and thought that she would be protected. So you can see how far gone she is. So yeah. I, I, in the end, I found her a fascinating study. I don't know if I'll have a coherent reading on her, but all of that is just to show that she serves many functions. Like I think she's a great foil to Nana Push in terms of their approaches to life and how to live it and why. I could never really get a reading on if she was a real prophet or not, because there were times when the book presents her as having a real reading of a moment, but then she's also just dead wrong on some things. And then, you know, she goes through a pretty human journey, at least in that she has doubts and everything. And there there are moments where she criticizes God, and I thought that was worth bringing up too, so she's not some perfect, Mm -hmm. she doesn't have some perfect journey of faithfulness and, you know, adherence or something. So that's her messy side. I'll get back to a conclusion on that in a second. On the Nanopush side, he basically stays irreverent and thoughtful this whole book. I mean, I I didn't pull as many quotes or any quotes for him because I... I found him to be more readable in that he never wavered and he didn't have a moment of turning quite like she did. Um, right. And so I, I, his journey just seemed easier to me to understand. I think maybe, though, the ending for, is still significant to unpack for him because he does use his, his ability to speak, talk, and communicate, <laughs> finally, in terms of he, he does get absorbed into the governmental bureaucracy and is elected as some kind of speaker or leader. I forget the title. But... So he is able to influence, you know, he does get his granddaughter back in the end. And so he is able to exert a small amount of control and influence. Granted, this was after tragedies befall him. He's, his land is colonized and taken and all that, all the, the horribleness. And he has to endure so much, but it does end with a small amount of victory for him. And so I think that's noteworthy that his method, if you want to call it that, or his approach did wield him one final bit of influence, I guess. You know, the final mm-hmm. line of the book is, we gave against Lulu's rush, or your rush like creaking oaks, held on and braced ourselves together in the fierce dry wind. That he's just sort of this stubborn force against natural forces that are way more powerful than he is, but he's just kind of mm-hmm. there and persistent. Um, I, I think, though, I don't want to leave his reading entirely as kind of like this subtle victory story because it's clear that he doesn't have actually much sway over Lulu. She's not dressing as he wants. She's probably not going to marry how he wants and she's not living entirely how he wants. But at least I think that final image, if nothing else, does present him as at least persistent, you know, one figure to admire in a way. Though, again, I think the reading with Lulu is that he might not be successful at this ultimately. And he certainly didn't keep Floor around, so that could be read as kind of a failure of his influence too. So my final reading then to kind of put him together, I think my reading for them as allegories of some kind would be just about change that the way Pauline interacts with the world and especially how she changes in the second half, she is kind of passion and convulsive change that she, she acts and does things suddenly. She moves with the trends much more aggressively converts really quickly when it's time to, when she wants to convert and then lives just aggressively in a faithful, you know, even militant adherence to Christianity or something. So I I would read her as that version of change he is more plodding, thoughtful, uh, maybe even irritatingly slow and stubborn and really less noticeable. But I think just the way he wraps up getting involved with the bureaucracy, getting Lulu back, you know, having some victory, at least in the end, maybe not a profound one, but there's that. So I think that he ends up being kind of maybe not as much as symbol of the old ways. Maybe that's Fleur's moment or kind of purpose in the, in the story or the novel. But I think for him, it's just about a different type of 
change because in the end he does you know despite him resisting throughout right like he doesn't take the doctor's advice about her flu's frostbite and there are other moments to where he just rejects some new way some new interpretation some new aspect of the new colonized life he, he has but i think he does change and it's just a different kind of more plotting version so i'm going to read them on those two sides of the of the change coin i suppose which is a weird kind of pun that i didn't intend so that's my that's my lengthy reading of those two. Please uh, interject with your thoughts and readings. I like that, and it brings to mind too the so they are very opposite. Um, and one of the ways that I was thinking as well that they're opposite is that Pauline claims to be thinking of others, right? But in actuality, all of her all of her behaviors, all of her actions are very selfish. They're all based on what she thinks she needs or wants. Whereas right. with Nana Push, all of his motivations are for others. His first encounter with Floor was to save her, was to try to help her, right? Right, And then right. his whole narrative is trying to help Lulu. And all of his actions are to it's more other based and it's it's more helpful in a lot of ways he's not as focused on himself he he sacrifices himself for others in a lot of ways and uh so i think that's really important too with the idea of um the the aspect of the the colonization as well of of the tribe of the people is that they are no longer thinking of others they are only thinking of themselves and the ability to survive right for themselves i think it could be also read now that i'm thinking of how to rephrase the reading or something but you could do a reading of her as kind of a destructive force and he is kind of a constructive force though i think Again, maybe he doesn't so much construct as withstand or something, but you're right. It's yeah. even in her martyrdom, she is. it's just about her and her own. She wants to think about her suffering, not the ability to help others. I mean, it's noteworthy right. that the, it seems like the parts of the Bible she's really into are the pain and suffering and not so much the helping people out, <laughs> which I right. feel like people forget about those chapters. I'm not sure how that happens, but they're <laughs> uh, mo- <laughs> most of it isn't Jesus wearing opposite toed shoes to hurt himself. It's him like giving stuff to people <laughs> right. in the end. Uh, so I, you know, maybe she should go and reread some other passages or something. I don't know. Yeah. I'm not sure what book she's reading um, or maybe an edition I'm unfamiliar with or something, but yeah, I don't, it, it's all just for her own martyrdom and to draw attention. I mean, you know, her, final act is literally talk about a symbolic moment she casts herself off makes her own problem draws attention to herself and like they literally can't even hear her she's just screaming for attention and they're like what you're too far away like are you okay <laughs> you know and mm-hmm. you know not a push of course tries to save her talk about a passing of the the allegory narrative torches there when he find you know that's their final moment right i think together where he right. tries to again it's just he's this pragmatic you know we can get out of this let's just get you to safety and she's doing some grand gesture for herself and no one else. They can't even hear her, you know. They can't even hear what she is complaining about her. It's just right. she's there only basically for her own self-sacrifice. So any final readings on those two narrators? Uh, nope, I think you're good. Excellent. You're great job. Okay, fantastic. I think I've said all I could about them, though I don't know. I feel like I could say a million things about Pauline's journey in the second half. I just, (laughs) I found it to be kind of the beautiful mess I'm all about reading. So I enjoyed her story (laughs) immensely in the second part anyway. 
And yeah, so let's wrap up that section. I was gonna, I was just gonna interject with a reading on her first chapter too, but I can't. I need to be stopped. I need to be ground down. <laughs> I'm becoming the Pauline of this podcast, so it's time to wrap that section up. But I have other thoughts. Let's leave it there. Let's move now to the Lost Pages, our second-to-last section in this book club episode. This will be a brief section, but we do like to expand on one thing the book should have included or one thing we hoped it would have included, maybe a, another chapter or an addendum or something, just we something we wanted more of. Amanda, what's your Lost Pages for this book? Um, it's just, where did Fleur go? She just yeah. kind of disappears. Nana Push says that Lulu should go visit her. Right, that's the whole purpose of of his narrative is to yeah. convince her to go visit her and to forgive her, um, and to understand why her marriage to a Morrissey would just be like the worst thing ever. Right, <laughs> right. But there's no information about where to go or anything like that. He doesn't actually tell Lulu where she is, unless I missed something. I don't know. And I love I the mysteriousness so. of her whereabouts. I just didn't really know what else to put. In, in the lost pages because I think that this is a pretty complete story otherwise yeah I think it's telling that I would want that too and then also the fact that it's not there I think we've already read and interpreted how that ending fits perfectly in terms yeah. of the change in terms of what she represents the maybe passivity of it all the the her connection with nature and just sort of fading rather than fighting and I yeah I think that it ends perfectly but you're you're not wrong my, my lost pages is similar but with a different slight request, I don't need to know where she went after that. Cause again, I think that can, we've brought a good clear reading to what that represented or meant. But I do think that uh, just one chapter, a little surprise chapter from Flora's point of view buried in here somewhere, I think would have been such a good punch would have been such a good blow to land. Like, and it, I don't know when I would have inserted it myself, but probably towards the end, of course, is a bit of a shock or something, but you remember mm-hmm. in the Underground Railroad how it has that final chapter from her mother's point of view? Like, I was just thinking yes. of a moment like that where you spend so much time focused on these people. Fleur is, I think, still the, the dominant figure in this book, but she's always in the background. You're never certain. She suffers so much, too, and has so much grief piled on her in the story, but we receive a lot of that secondhand. I just... Mm-hmm. I think it fits perfectly the myth mythology of her that this book wants to build up and the way it wants to portray her in that interpretation. And yet I'm still thinking, man, if there was just one quick little five pager, just something really fierce from her point of view, some final yeah. reflection or act or deed, or I don't know what, again, I'm not sure what I would have wanted, but goodness, I think that would have been what I would have wanted. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. I, she, it's perfect because she is so passive and her voice is often kind of like taken away from her anyway. Yeah. Um, so it fits well, but yeah, I would love to actually see something uh, told by her. I think that'd be great. A great addition to. Would it have to be the moment when she cuts down all the trees and leaves or is there some other moment that would have been as important? Um, perhaps, um, her saying goodbye to Lulu or something like that. Like, how mm-hmm. do you tell your daughter, like, hey, I'm I'm not abandoning you. I'm trying to give you a chance to be, you know, accepted and to, to flourish in this mm-hmm. new world. Like, 
I think that would be a really interesting too because that was that is like her only real it's it's like almost passive aggressive but it's it's of an actual action that she's taking too yeah, so yeah. I don't know I, I would like to see perhaps her take on that and maybe that's just because I'm a mom mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah no. so. I think it would be a challenging scene to write I was thinking now I'm thinking if it was beginning and ending maybe it could be her well i don't know it's like i don't want her to insert a chapter i don't need the point of view of the assault uh, again the sexual and assault and rape against her or something but it would be if that was included it would be then at the beginning her point of view on this moment where she's really powerless or you know has this but then at the ending there was a second chapter of her exerting her will you know cutting down those trees and like having that moment of power potency that could have made for an interesting one too where we get her at mm-hmm. the, her you know lowest and most hurt and then her i don't know that's also a low moment though because her land is taken away so i'm yeah i don't know i'm yeah. struggling but i i not for my me to write i you know <laughs> she crafted the masterwork <laughs> for sure so i i don't know maybe that's why i'm struggling to come up with a good idea for this but yeah it, it did remind me of that though where you you get this mythological figure in a story and yeah, something from her point of view might have might have really, at least, kind of lit my fire, so to speak, literary wise, literarily. Mm-hmm. Any final thoughts on the lost pages? Uh, no. Excellent. Okay. Well, let's jump into the critical assistance. This will be the final section for this book club episode. We do like to go outside of ourselves and pull some criticism from places that we often go to journals criticism um havens like the new yorker <laughs> new york times things like that you know <laughs> wherever we can find it often from book blogs and other amateur sources too i pulled mine from the new york times this week you from kirkus nice. reviews it looks like so i'll mm-hmm. i'll let, give it over to you amanda take it away for your uh, critical assistance any quotes you want to talk about sure um i learned from kirkus reviews that actually this book is a part of a series. Yes. And this was like a prequel, but it was written after the other two mm-hmm. books. I think so. I found that interesting. Anyway, um, so from Carcass Reviews, I don't know who wrote the article. I guess whoever Carcass is, but um, <laughs> he says. I think that's um, a media entity. Sorry to interject oh, right yeah. before the quote. No, you're good. I think it's a, the name of an organization. Mm. I so the, think one of the writers, I guess, from yeah, Marcus. I think it's just kind of a neutral magazine that is just because I'm pretty sure it's an old institution. I, I can't say I use it often or I'm super familiar with it, but I I think yeah. it's just kind of a literary magazine slash hub. But okay. and any, yeah. I, what I don't think is that there's a person Kirkus of any. I don't think it's a person's website. I'm pretty sure it's like a magazine. Maybe now it's online only or something. I don't know. Anyway, just, yeah, I, I've definitely heard of it, but I, I can't say much more than you about it, frankly. It's not one that I use or frequent. <laughs> um, yeah, I did see that there were quite a few reviews of different books. So. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Um, maybe, hey, maybe we'll use it in the future. It'll be a bedrock of the pod now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Who maybe. Who knows? Anyway, take it away. Um, so, Kirkus writes, <laughs> <laughs> Erdrick keeps to her cast of rich Chippewa characters here, pillagers, Kashpawa, Lazares, 
familiar to readers of both Love Medicine and The Beat Queen, but has placed them chronologically before the setting of those other novels. It's at a period that sees the death knell of their most natural Indian identity, thanks to famine and economic rapaciousness and the pressures of missionary Christianity. So I chose this one because it points out that it's a prequel, but also it points, um, he's mentioning that it's... um, specifically with the missionary Christianity, which I tied back to Pauline and the idea of their, the death knell of their most natural Indian identity. I thought that was put really well. Um, mm-hmm. cause yeah, that's like the whole, the way that I read it as well. <laughs> yeah, completely. I think that's well put. It's, and I also encountered in the, in various reviews or maybe it was even Wikipedia that this is part of a larger cast prequel of sorts which i think made the most sense in regards to the families because none of those conflicts ever felt like they came alive to me in this book they felt almost random like they were old harbored kind of conflicts that i never i didn't feel like that was central in the story it was just kind of you were meant to know it almost right so yeah that makes sense yeah they just kind of like popped up and you're like oh new family okay yeah yeah (laughs) yeah um the other thing that i pulled was um when the reviewer said the most striking poetry of the ever lyrically inventive Erdrich is this book's frequent and moving invocation of the spirits as milling with inside of the living a seamlessness of states. So I thought that was really interesting and it, and it brought to mind for me specifically the scene where um, Fleur, after her the death of the second baby, um, and Pauline follows her, and then she plays that card game with the ghosts. Right, right. Um, and we interpret it as she's playing for the life of Lulu, right? Because they have her shoe, Lulu's shoe. Mm-hmm. And then, so they're like playing, she's playing for the life of her child. Um, <clears throat> but I, I enjoyed actually the magical realism aspect. I think that the person who wrote this article thinks that it's like a real magical realism and perhaps it is like we haven't read the other two books so maybe that's a a common thread that's like developed through those books but yeah i i i also really enjoy the magical realism that's present in the book so yeah i think in in the first half for us we were not reading it very literally but just sort of loosely in terms of memory or myth and i think in the pauline part I just interpreted that all as Pauline's wild haze of just her un, really unstable mental state being in, in yeah. the sweeps of conversion like she was in. So at that point, everything she was writing, and I think even if I went back through and kind of meticulously compared it to Nana Push's, none of his sections ever really have those moments that I remember or that I can remember. He He references things but never experiences them in that way, I don't think, right? right? All those moments are from Pauline's point of view. Yeah, the only, like, kind of supernatural thing that I remember Nana Push going through is when he was guiding um, Eli to the moose. So he was banging his drum and entered, like, um, yeah, the meditative state, and he's actually guiding and seeing through Eli's eyes. Oh, that I, okay, I completely forgot about that. Yeah, 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 that's a good one. Yeah. Okay. No, completely. And I and I remember the time passes. Doesn't it pass really quickly or slowly then, or something? I don't. I feel like there's some kind of time yeah, it's, dilation. Yeah. Yeah. It's like uh, things around him 
um, slowed down. And so that as he was honing in on right. Eli, it was like, yeah. Fascinating. Okay. No, completely. Anyway, any other quotes from, from that review you want to talk through? Sure. Um, Erdrich's prose is rich, her imagination remarkably agile. Paragraphs take strange, jerky turns, rarely going where you thought they might. Her sympathy and unsentimentality striking, yet this is a diffuse book, one lacking a core, either of emblem, as in love medicine, or screwy, heartbreaking story, as in the Bee Queen. If you've read those others, you'll read this too. Its pages about the famine are unforgettable, but in a mood of generality of taking in characters we're told are extraordinary, but are rarely shown as such. So that last bit, I disagreed with. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, her prose is rich. Yes, her imagination is like I mean, she's just a great storyteller. Yes, um, and it's a great story. But then where this person says that this book lacks a core, I was like, what? I don't agree with that at all. <laughs> well, it is a, as we've tried to unpack the dual narratives. I think it's left. We are left to interpret their their meaning their symbolic power, the kind of way they line up or something. And there's no, Pauline doesn't actually have a conflict that relates to these people directly in any way, except for, I guess she manipulates Eli, but it's very much a periphery. She comes in and out, you know, she witnesses the attack on floor fades out, tries to manipulate Eli fades out, you know, is it, the missionary stuff, especially she has no real impact on their lives. She just happens to be there because of prophecy or something. When floor's baby dies in birth. So it's it's it is a strange I could see somebody who wants some kind of I don't know plot to happen between them just kind of thinking well they just keep having scenes together but I don't know how to read it but I think we struck upon some good readings of why both of these narratives I don't know play so well. Mhm. Also yeah, I think the, the extraordinary yeah. line too doesn't that kind of fit with our reading of Fleur but I just think we enjoyed that aspect of it of the tantalizing kind of teasing nature that she's not she's not in it really or she's not a point of view right and and if we were so the way that we interpreted it is that she's not actually able to conjure up these things right Mm -hmm. but if we were to read it as she is actually that in tune with nature and that she does have this relationship with the lake the lake monster and stuff like that then she would be extraordinary and is being shown to be extraordinary by the actions of like manipulating nature in order to exact her revenge. Right. Right. No, completely. I think her being in very much in the story, if not even about it being about her, but her being absent is, I thought a really bold choice that worked, but maybe we just had to bring too much of a reading to it to make it work or something. Again, the benefits of talking through a book, I suppose. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. yeah maybe if you read this in a more passive way or didn't have any time to pause and think or talk through things it would be frustrating or something and it you're right you alluded to this earlier i don't know that how those other ones are constructed perhaps they're just much clearer you know single track kind of stories that have a much mm. you know easier way to read so yeah cool but, i mean I, I definitely want to read them so <laughs> yeah i picked up a book of um erdrick is at a used bookstore not even this past weekend just this past nice. weekend. nice yeah, Which one? Uh, the one that won the National Book Award. I forget the title of it, but she did. she's won a National Book Award. And, and I think last year she won the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction for a new book. So she's she's active. She's actually prolific. <laughs> she's written like 30 novels or something wild or 30 books or something. It's, yeah, so she's she's. Was it the Roundhouse? Yes, that's the National Book Award one. So that's the one I picked yeah. up. Mm-hmm. It's on the title page. There we go. Yeah, excellent. <laughs> 
I pulled for my critical assistance from the New York Times archives, New York Times rather, archives, um, and it's just under Books of the Times, Indians Displaced by Time and Loss, and it's by um, Michiko, yeah, Mi shoot, see now I gotta pronounce a name I didn't read out loud before, in the moment, live on the pod. Mi Michiko. <laughs> Michiko, there we go. Um, <laughs> Kakutani. Sorry, I was. It was that. It was the itch plus the ick sound. I was like, oh no, I can't. my brain was do doing them at the same time. <laughs> uh, just a mess. Anyway, you can find it on the New York Times. It's from the '90s, I think. This review. So, a couple of quotes. The first one I'll start with just briefly. It says, because the story of Pauline, Fleur, and Nanapush and their assorted relatives is somewhat fragmented and episodic, the reader, especially if you didn't read those other books, is constantly wondering what's happened to the other central characters, and in the early portions of the book, one feels Miss Erdrich straining to set her tale in motion, studiously connecting one incident in the future to another that's taken place in the past. Looking back now, I definitely felt that way, like I said, especially when other families came in and out. I just didn't feel the history of it. I felt like I was being summarized to instead of experiencing that. And so mm -hmm. those connections never really came alive to me. But the the core set of characters definitely did. It's just the periphery parts. I think maybe it was too fuzzy for me or maybe like this person supposes. It's just if you know the history from the other books, then it's you don't need to you you fill it in on your own. You don't need to be told. I felt like I needed to be told something. I felt like I was missing 30 pages of, you know, just more interaction or something history. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you agree with that, but that's how I felt. Uh, I mean, it, they did definitely like pop up for me, and I was like, "Oh, well, there." I can tell that there's some animosity here. So yeah, I guess they did kind of just like pop up, and, and I wasn't quite sure what the the background was. But I thought that that was due to the fact that like um, with the Morrisseys, they are mixed, right? They specifically mm -hmm. were talking about how they're mixed, and also they're super wealthy, and they're buying up everybody else's land. So I thought. For me, I made I, I was like kind of attributing it to that is the reason that there's some mm -hmm. friction there. So and you're I remember this in the part one pod. I don't think I said this out loud, but you had clear readings and you remembered those details about them: who was rich, who wasn't, who that kind of. And I didn't remember any of that from the book. I, I just feel like those references are really cast off as quick comment. I I didn't feel like there was a moment where I was shown their wealth or I really felt that they were more like. It just, I don't know, that when you said that to me in that episode one, I remember thinking, oh, I, I think they were described that way, but it that didn't stick in my mind enough for them to stand up as some kind of representation in the book. So when you mm -hmm. said that, I had to rethink some of my reading. I was like, oh, yeah, maybe they do represent that. Or, yeah, it, anyway, I felt like that was missing for me, at least as, as a reader. Um, the a couple other quotes from this piece. Once the pieces of the narrative puzzle are in place, however, her dazzling storytelling powers take command. Tracks, like her earlier novels, is enlivened by powerful scenes of dreamlike intensity. And then he just describes a bunch of, or he or she, sorry, describes a bunch of the scenes, which, you know, I won't recount here. But yeah, I agree that the, and I think we both agreed in the end, that the dreamlike nature of some of it, she lets her mm -hmm. images flow. She lets her metaphors play and dance. And it, it all kind of just sings on the page as we have spoken to in a basic way. It's just very poetic in that simple description and i think yeah to me it's uh, the pauline part again i'll comment on it came alive for me in the back half once there was a clear narrative track for her to just kind of walk down i think in the first half we were just kind of wondering what's she up to what does she want what's her purpose in the story and we had our readings but once the religious conversion begins that was like a train car running down the tracks i wanted to get to her chapters just immediately to see what she was up to 
the, what crazy antics she was coming up with. For sure, for sure. <laughs> New tortures for herself. Exactly. The Flora <laughs> Nana Push stuff was, I think, kept the same hum of interest for me throughout the whole thing, kind of even keel. But yeah, mm-hmm. the Pauline stuff to me picked up pretty radically after that happened. And then final mm-hmm. quote from this one that I'll read. Out of context, such scenes, like the ones they describe, which are, you know, they... I can, I'll briefly say that they shave Margaret's head and kidnap her at some point. The family does Flora right. buries the, her dead child in a box, you know, and hangs it up as a kind of a symbol in a tree or kind of a marker. Um, Pauline sets herself in, adrift in the leaky boat, then kills the, her father's ch- or the, her child's father when he attempts to save her, all these things. And then the author says out of context, such scenes might seem overly melodramatic, but combined with Miss Erdrich's gift for locating the intersection between public and private grief, they loft the story of familiar loss out of the realm of the mundane and into the magical and eternal world of fable. Lots of quotes in that sentence to unpack. I think it does end up feeling a bit fable-like to me, which I really enjoyed. But the mm-hmm. way the narrative gets ground and kind of the way that this Native American tribe gets ground down by, you know, mun- mundane realities and even harsh, brutal ones of colonization and governmental impositions and everything, I think made it a fable that I, the kind of fable I enjoyed. It didn't stay lofty, heady, and unclear and fuzzy and weird. It also gets immediately pulled into realities too. I think that interplay worked really well, in my mind anyway. The I'll remember the scenes when things were hazy and fuzzy, and then I'll remember the really mundane survival aspects and how they just dealt with the kind of realities of their lives too. So I thought that worked really well. Um, yeah. Overly melodramatic? Yeah, when you list it off, I could kind of see it. And I guess it's a credit to her writing that I didn't feel that way in the moment. I'm also not Mm -hmm. very plot sensitive myself. I'm definitely not a kind of check the chronology of the timeline, look for plot holes. I'm pretty willing to ride with with an author as long as the writing um, rhetorical, in my mind, like quality is is high or something, as long as the style Mm -hmm. is popping and kind of singing to me, then I I will forgive some of that stuff for sure. That's just the kind of reader I am, I suppose. But yeah, in retrospect, I could see that interpretation or see it feeling that way. I know this author didn't claim it as such, but I kind of agree with him that, yeah, when you list it off, maybe it it seems that way. I looking at that quote in the, the idea of it being kind of like a fable, I hadn't thought of it as a fable, but it does in some aspects fit, but a, a way more enjoyable fable than mm. what you and I have read in the past. <laughs> yeah. Because it would, you can hardly describe this as moralizing, you know, it's too right. entangled and messy to be a moral story of any kind. I think maybe not a push, already commented commented on the ending for him but maybe some of the way his story wraps up and his kind of stature in the story could be read in some mortal angles i mean and pauline certainly delves into morality her narrative has to do with morality but i don't think you could finish this and say there is a clear moral you know takeaway that would be i would think your reading is too simple then or something Mm -hmm. you know so yeah i thought some interesting quotes from that one and i i agreed with the overall assessment but i think Final comment on the critical assistance for me anyway, when the person referenced that there were other books and this whole um, part of, I think it's meant to be a fake part of North Dakota, kind of has, she's built up this land, this tribe, these families, and has a kind of, you know, history of her own making. That made sense because the more I thought about some of the other family references and kind of periphery details, the more I thought, yeah, I was confused by some things in retrospect, mm-hmm. but usually the floor kind of 
I just wanted to know more about Floor, and so the fact that both the characters kept circling around her was more than enough to propel me. And I, when you know, when I didn't get a family reference, I maybe should have. I just kind of <laughs> rammed past it and was like, "Yeah, but let's just get back to what what's Floor doing, <laughs> you know, or what what, <laughs> what is happening around her that I can learn about and stuff." So yeah, it didn't bug me at all. Any final thoughts on yeah. those uh, quotes? Nope. Okay. Excellent. Okay. Well, final thoughts on tracks by Luis Erdrich then. Um, just that I am looking forward to reading the other two books in this series. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. I think of all the books we've done so far and we're getting deep in it now. It's, it's definitely becoming yeah. enough that I don't remember them all top of head off the top of my head. <laughs> and so, but I think of all the things we've read, this was maybe the author I feel most certain that I'll read more of because I mm-hmm. really latched onto the style and the writing. And I, Toni Morrison maybe hit me that way too, but I'd already read some of her. So for this to be an author I'd never encountered, um, to have such such a strong first impression of it is, it was pretty potent. I think it was a meaningful book for sure for me in terms of just, I don't know, literary enjoyment and and intrigue and everything. Yeah. Okay. Uh, No final words on tracks, then let's introduce some upcoming books. We will continue the pod as always. We march on. We have other books chosen coming up in order. They are Churchill and Orwell, The Fight for Freedom by Thomas E. Ricks, Born a Crime by Trevor Noah, and You Can't Keep a Good Woman Down by Alice Walker. Just keep your eye on the podcast feed for book recommendations and then, of course, book club episodes on those. I'm not going to describe them here, but, you know, keep your eye on the feed and we'll talk about them in the coming weeks. We are, as I mentioned at the beginning and now, the Lightly Literary Podcast. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Please do so. Tell your friends and family, etc., etc. Thank you so much for listening. We will be back soon with more books. And until then, as always, we'll see you between the pages. (laughs) 